concentration of wealth in the world yes but how was a bartender gonna get his hands on any of it this is the big time you're ready for the big time young mr flanagan i think i can handle it. this isn't what i ordered get your act together white wine all right now what was it that you ordered a martini what's in that in many ways the fool a customer you will learn them all Yes, Obi-Wan. You get the women, you get the bucks. You can see the color of their panties, and you know you've got talent. Stick with me, son, I'll make you a star. I want you guys working for me. This is a real opportunity. Jet set bartenders, eh? The Caribbean Jamaica man. Can I buy a drink? My rum specialties, perhaps? Bartender with a line for everything. The bartender. Now, he's about to be swept off his feet. Stay here forever. By the one thing he didn't expect. I don't tell me Brian Flanagan is in love. This lady's gonna do a number on you, mate. This is more than just a one-night stand. You made a move on her? I'm your friend, you dumbass! Well, I don't have any friends! As of now, that is for sure! Your sexy little smile's not gonna work this time. What the hell is this? That's for you. $10,000. Is that all your daughter's worth? You think I'm letting some bartender walk into my family? I love you. I want to marry you. Throw this bum out of here! You're so hung up on money. See this? Jordan? This is how hung up on money I am. And as for the way I feel about you, I wish you didn't know. Watch a movie. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Quick, quick, quick. Stop it, Please don't aggregate this. Lillard, long range three. Their defense is atrocious. I'm sort of the rock star. Tiso is the official watch of the NBA. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about aggregation. I'm oddly intrigued by neck tattoos. You know, we love China. We love no plan here. It comes a dunk. Shut up and listen. You think you're better than me? <laughs> hey, it's Chris. Welcome back to the Rewindables. Quick word at the top of today's show, and then we'll hop right in. First things first, today's guest is the incredible Robert Court. Robert produced The Cutting Edge in 1992. He's had an amazing career, which we will get into in detail on the show. He's produced a number of really iconic films. We're super stoked that we got to speak with him. Obviously, the WGA and SAG are on strike. I'm a member of SAG. Ben, Christian, and I, we stand in strong solidarity with unions, with labor, Robert Court is a member of the PGA, the Producers Guild. He's not a member of the AMPTP, which is comprised of motion picture studios, TV networks, streaming services. So just to be clear, we're not striking against Robert. We're striking against the global media conglomerates that we all periodically have to work for from time to time, gig to gig, movie to movie, 
as actors, writers, and independent producers. Secondly, we recorded this before the strike. And third, going forward, future episodes are going to be impacted by the strike. We're going to avoid any direct promotion of the film as best as we can. We're going to avoid promoting the film and TV business as much as we can. But critically, it's important that everyone hears and understands from us directly that we are not affiliated in any way with the AMPTP. We don't take money from MGM or Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or any of those big companies who make movies and TV shows and this podcast is, from a financial standpoint, actually a net loss. We don't, we don't take money from anyone. We only lose money. Um, but we do so, Ben, Christian, and I, we do so happily. We, 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 we make this just out of a, this is a labor of love. We do this because we enjoy it, not because we're making money from anyone at all. And lastly, this being a podcast, I had a technical malfunction on my end during the interview. My mic crapped out. So unfortunately, I had to use my master audio from the Zoom call uh, with Robert. Apologies. I know it's not ideal, but hopefully you can still enjoy the interview. And that's that. Without further ado, here is our chat with Robert Court. All right. Welcome back to The Rewindables. Chris Wendelkin, Christian Lynch. We are, Christian, I think, 20 episodes into a deep dive. We're 20. We're 20. Yeah. yeah, Big number 20. uh, Big number 20. This is what we're aiming for. 20 episodes into a deep dive into the 1992 sports romantic comedy, The Cutting Edge. Christian, our guest today is the film's producer, Robert Court. Since 1985, Robert has produced upwards of 4850 films grossing over $2 billion worldwide. They include uh, On the Basis of Sex, Three Men and a Baby, Cocktail, Jumanji, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Revenge of the Nerds, Part Two, Nerds in Paradise, Save the Last Dance, and most importantly, The Cutting Edge. Um, Christian, give a warm welcome to Robert Court. Welcome to the show, Robert. It is a lovely, terrific to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to talk to you. We really, really, really appreciate it. Well, Cutting Edge, you know, I, I, I think it's with the TV films, it's now 57 films. And I just came back from shooting a movie in Romania, which will be 58. So okay. Amazing. And, Amazing. Yeah, so, but but the point of, of it is that many of them grossed theatrically more than the cutting edge by often many multiples. I mean, three men and a baby. Touchstone Pictures presents Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, Ted Danson. Jack. Angela. Oh, you look different. What happened? I'm dressed. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Three incredibly eligible men hoping to meet some incredibly perfect women. So many women. (laughs) In so little time. time. Now, at last, they're about to find that one girl who will sweep them off their feet. (laughs) That's a baby. It's a baby. Of course it's a baby. It's your baby. No, it's not my baby. It's Jack's baby. The child doesn't look anything like me. I have more hair. I want to see the way you three big guys handle this one. I had to go to three different places, buy four different kinds of formula, two different kinds of diapers, bottles, towels, nipples. You do realize she did a doodle. Doodle, doodle, yes, doodle. You haven't been able to work or to sleep. And there's been all over this place for days. I build 50-story skyscrapers. I assemble cities of the future. I can certainly put together a diaper. Will somebody please tell me what the hell is going on around here? Figure it out for yourself. Are they always this strange? Yes. Since they got involved with another woman. 
Touchstone Pictures presents three normally intelligent men and one little girl. So, uh, what do you want to do? They're about to discover the only thing worse than raising her... Oh, no, no, please, not on the silk sheets! ...is losing her. We should be her family. And let me tell you, the first time you hear the word daddy, I don't care who you are, your heart just melts. Can you drive a little faster, please? Touchstone Pictures presents a comedy about three dedicated bachelors and the one woman in the world they couldn't live without. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Do, 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 do. I hate to leave you, but I really must say good night, sweetheart. Good night. Three men and a baby. I think she did a doodle. Your turn to change her. I'll give you a thousand dollars if you'll do it. One of the top five comedies of all time in terms of box office. But there are very few movies of that I've made that have such passionate followers as The Cutting Edge and people who just really, uh, really found and experienced uh, a lot of joy, a lot of obviously comedy and so forth, but a lot of joy from the movie. And I, for me, that is thrilling it's, it's it's kind of why i do what i do yeah and just so you know robert over the last few months we have watched this movie in so many forms that we've spent at least twenty thousand dollars renting it buying dvds so uh congrats <laughs> on all the residual checks coming from specifically our team <laughs> for loving this film so much i i want to open with this question which is that we, when we were setting up this interview with you, you had kind of mentioned in emails that you have obviously done uh, going on 58 films as a producer, many of them just incredible uh, films, but you had mentioned that Cutting Edge was one of your favorites. And I'm kind of just, let's start there. Like, what about this film, uh, which we obviously love, uh, what about it for you makes it one of your favorites? Three or four different things. Uh, you know, it, it's people often ask, like, well, what's your favorite movie, right? And it's it, it's it's hard to uh, judge, as it often it is with children. Like, you know, for one, um, you know, we created this from scratch. It was, it, we gave birth to it. Uh, Tony, Paul, uh, Tony Gilroy, who wrote it, Paul, Michael Glazer, who directed it, and the whole cast. This came from just an original idea, and I'll tell you the story behind the idea and how it, how it came to be. So I think just the fact that it it was so much a part of its creators, um, and I certainly consider myself uh, crucial in that role. So that's one thing. Uh, I think the second is it was such an underdog you know, no one wanted to make this movie. And as is, I mean, it's a common story in Hollywood that many of the most beloved movies were, you know, no one wanted to make and no one believed in and so forth. So I think the belief of all of us who were associated with the movie uh, was, it, it's like when you win, you know, it's, it's like Dorsey and <laughs> with him, the team winning, you know, the medal. I mean, it, we, we were underdogs. So I think there's great satisfaction in that. And, and I'll tell you really fun story, oh, fun story, an interesting story. The director, Paul Michael Glazer, became my best friend. And Paul's like my brother. And um, and I say that really meaningfully. I'm having having lunch with him uh, tomorrow. We uh, after uh, after we made the movie, um, Paul was a member of Riviera uh, Golf Club and 
he said you got to join and and i think from 1993 to almost last year we played golf every weekend twice a weekend so he's he meant so much to me that between the underdog status the originality of the piece and my personal relationship with paul um those combined to make it really something very special for me and it's nice that it really satisfying that it was special for other people. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about your conceiving of this idea? We spoke to Tony Gilroy, and he made it clear to us that this film was really your sort of brainchild, that you were the one that had this idea for a skating movie. Tony told us that you had this notion that every certain number of years that Hollywood was due for a big skating film. And um, and and you were the one that proposed this idea of like taming of the shrew on ice and that you conceived the idea of uh, a hockey player transforming into a figure skater. So can you just maybe walk us through that process of conceiving it? Well, I started in the business running marketing at Columbia Pictures. Um, that was that was how I, you know, uh, uh, began in the business. And one of the movies we had back then was a film called Ice Castles. Um, and, uh, it's about a blind ice skater, as I remember it. I mean, it's a long time ago, but it was remarkably successful for its small size and, and, and a really lovely movie. I mean, I remember being touched by it. At any rate, that was, I, I had that, I think, probably in the back of my brain, um, and is very, very specific. I, I don't know, remember the exact year, probably would have been about 87 or 88. Um, I was homesick. And I turned on, I was watching figure skating for some reason, it was on ESPN or it was some channel. And out came these two skaters with these plastic grins on their faces, you know, kind of like, and I watched and one held up the other, and, you know, and, like intimately. And I just had this thought, like, well, what if they hated each other? I mean, you've got somebody's crotch in your hands <laughs> and you're so intimate with them. And what if you couldn't stand them, uh, but you couldn't get away from them because this was essentially your livelihood or your thing. That's where it, that's where it started. I came into work. We had a wonderful company called Interscope. Um, and I said to my colleagues, I have this idea. Uh, like, you know, and, and the elements of it were, first of all, the, the, the intimacy of two uh, figure skate, uh, a pair of figure skating team who really hated each other. The notion of an odd couple um, uh, and the idea of the uh, sort of the taming of the shrew, which I think is probably not terribly woke today in terms of... Uh, <laughs> I think and it's kind of interesting that no one calls it out for that, but but that that idea and um, and I you know I'm I'm a great sports fan and and and, um, and I love comedy and I love romantic comedy and so I think that was the underlying um, that was the derivation of the movie. Then we went out to find a writer. We found Tony who. And the thing, one of the things I'm proudest of is this is Tony Gilroy's first produced movie. 
he's one of the great writers in Hollywood in the last 30 or 40 years. And we got him early on. And he uh, he did he he did a magnificent job. So that's how it all began. And uh, and then, it, you know, we we got the script and we went and we went from there. I think what's kind of interesting is I recall, you know, George Roy Hill's Slapshot. That our flag was still and the three of you guys, you pull one thing, you're out of this game. Now I run a clean game here. I have any trouble, I'll suspend you. I'm listening to a fucking song! Great hockey film comes out. Many that love the film know that's a fantastic film, but it didn't, at the time, perform very well. I think a lot of sports films, very difficult to uh, get, it seems like a high return on it, at least, at least at that point. It seemed like sports films were becoming a thing. Was it difficult for you to convince others? I know you mentioned that Ice Castles was kind of uh, an inspiration for starting this film, but was it difficult to convince others that this was going to be a film that people would love? Uh, Figure skating was a pretty niche sport. Um, I mean, obviously, like the underlying story being the bard himself makes a lot of sense when we heard about it. Um, So there's like, obviously, the connection of character, but still figure skating strikes me as perhaps an uphill battle at that time. Was there any concern of trying to convince others that this was a film worth making? Did you say finger painting? You've been doing what? Finger painting? Uh, (laughs) Yes. Yes. Roberts. Roberts. I was waiting for that. Um, It wasn't, it was not, it was not hard. It was impossible. I mean, I think we, we, um, we had our deal at Disney at the time. We were making a lot, we made a lot of movies for Disney. Um, they passed immediately. Um, and, um, no one really wanted to do it. Um, and then we sent it to Alan Ladd at the Ladd Company. In the summer of 1977, my whole family piled into the car and drove to the AFCO cinema, but not to see a movie, to see the line for a movie. Why? Because my dad, Alan Ladd Jr., is the film executive who gave George Lucas the green light to make Star Wars. He's also the most influential movie executive you've never heard of. During his career, he's been an agent, a producer, an executive, and a studio head. With 150 Academy Award nominations and 50 Academy Award wins, he's one of the most prominent executives in the history of Hollywood. Not that any of this impressed me much growing up, Just as my dad spent years trying to escape the shadow of his own illustrious father, I tried everything I could to do the same. In the end, I also gravitated to the movie business. And every job I did, someone inevitably had a story about my dad. I decided it was time to sit down with all my dad's friends and colleagues and hear what they had to say about the man they call Laddie. How about if I say Laddie, your dad? If you got to work for the old-fashioned studio boss, he was it. He was a kind of boots-on-the-ground producer. There's guys that just do it. He's one of those guys, and that's what you want. The objective was to help these incredibly creative people make the best possible movie they could. Laddie made movies because he cared about making movies. Laddie was one of the few people that actually said, I trust the artist. Laddie was definitely the man for me. Hey, I got something. You want to read it? He said, yeah, absolutely. And you'd get an answer by... Tuesday. That kind of risk-taking is somewhat absent. Laddie was at the forefront of giving women a true responsibility, and a lot of other companies wouldn't let a woman have that responsibility. He was a supporter of what we did, always. He's definitely one of the kind. 
He's like the heroic guy that came into the town, cleaned it up, and just left him. Where is he? I've known Laddie for a long time. Um, not well, but Laddie loved it, and his team loved it. And they were resolute in their support of this movie. And without them, there is no cutting edge. Uh, and Laddie's gone now. Um, but I, I had the, you know, the great pleasure of thanking him many, many times for his support. And he did, not only did he bring MG, bring his company to, um, uh, to finance it, but he did something else, which is uh, we were, we went out. So he, he, he optioned the movie. Uh, we had a script at that point and we went to get a director and we had, had as much luck with directors as we had with studios. I mean, again, no one, for all the reasons you said, you know, people were not sure it's a mix of genres. Can you do that? Um, uh, and, um, Laddie called one day and he said, I'd really like you to, uh, I'd really like you to talk to this uh, director. I mean, he's think he's really talented. I said, and, and I and he really likes the script. So I would have talked to anybody who really liked the script at that point. <laughs> but um, I said, who? He said, uh, Paul Michael Glazer. So if you, uh, I thought, well, a couple of things. Paul's, you know, did running. I think he did running. He did, you know, and. And band of the hand, he's coming off too dystopian. Hand, yeah. So I, you know, I, I mean, I knew Paul, I knew him as Starsky, obviously. And I thought, well, all right, that's not probably a great credit. Uh, but you know, it's a comedy. And at that time, as you probably know, Paul was going through one of the great, you know, human tragedies uh, of of our lives of, of, of contemporary lives which is his, he lost his daughter and, and his wife was going to die of AIDS um of HIV and his son had HIV Jake and I thought oh you know okay I this is not this is not who you think about for a romantic comedy in a sports movie right so I but I said of course I'll meet him and I met Paul and he came in and um, Paul's a magnetic character. I mean, he really passionate, um, sincere. I think one of the finest people I've ever met in my life. I, I would, uh, beyond anything else. And I, and I think ultimately that quality is what makes cutting edge work. But I'll come back to that. So we we met and, and I said to Paul, so tell me about your feelings. And, and he he talked about the movie as like a human tragedy. You know, it was like he was looking at all of the dramatic aspects of the film. And um, I'm, I'm listening to him and, and um, uh, I'm saying to myself, this guy is not getting the fact that it's a romantic comedy, you know? So I, the meeting ended and I, I called Laddie and I, I said, you know, uh, he's a really nice man, but I think he's going to make the, you know, the Ibsen version of Cutting Edge. And I think that's not what's, and he said, oh, he said, well, just maybe meet with him again. Let me, let me, I'll talk to him. And so he, Paul came in again and um, 
he explained it. He said, you know, I think that the playing the reality and playing the stakes of these characters for, for reality will be what will make the movie really funny. And of course he was right about that. And, um, and then I said to him, how, I'm going to ask you this elephant in the room question, which is how can you go about making a comedy when you're in the situation you're in? Because I felt that if I didn't say what was on my mind and what was going to be a factor for the for the next year, year and a half of our lives, uh, I wasn't doing justice to all the people who were part of the film and all. And Paul was very eloquent in 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 in, in partially in saying that he, his sensitivities were such um, that he he could feel really deeply about the characters, and he understood my concern about making it funny. He would go for that a hundred percent. Paul's very engaging and very funny, and when you meet him, and so you know we we ended that meeting really well. I felt you know, all right, this movie emotionally is going to work. Um, he's going to make it work, and we'll just have to watch to make sure the comedy is coming across as, as oh, and it, of course it did. So it was one of those things where, again, I, you know, you, you um, no one wanted to make it. The producer didn't want the director. I mean, it's, and, you know, in the end, of course, it, it, it worked out, worked out fabulously. I mean, the, the, the thing about cutting edge for me, and I think this is, if somebody said to me, is there, is there a common theme in all your movies and probably not all of your movies, but um, um, I think it is without question, the idea of unconditional love that I love you for who you are, not what you can do for me. And I think that's one of the, the things so many people want and don't necessarily have in their lives. By my own personal experiences with it and, um, and feel it very deeply. And, and again, so many of my, my films are, are about that. And I think Paul understood that. And when you get to the end of Cutting Edge and she says, you know, are you doing this for, you know, and he says, I, I love you. Don't do it. You know, and and then she says, so you can't stop me. Right. I think that that moment uh, was in part truly brought out by the actors and Paul. And so I think that we were very fortunate that um, Laddie suggested Paul, that I was smart enough ultimately to see how great he would be. And, um, and you know, that, that, uh, that, that we had enough people who, 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 who believed in the movie to get the movie to happen and to happen the way it did. All right. So you mentioned the actors. Let's talk about some of the actors and your involvement in that whole process. So let's start here. Were you, were you involved at all in the casting? Did, were you at auditions or callbacks or screen tests? I think you, you know, I, I the producer is a very amorphous uh, title in, 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 in Hollywood. Um, my career uh, I, you know, on uh, 
lot of movies, so it, it, the role varied on some of them. But on movies like Three Men or you know Cocktail or um, uh, Bill and Ted, I mean, you know, th- these are movies um, which we you know created in many regards and and was and I'm totally involved with at every stage: choice of director, choice of screenwriter, the development of the script, which is you know years in, in the works. Um, even with a talented writer like Tony, the script evolved over many different drafts in, in many different ways. Um, so casting for sure was, you know, really Paul and myself. And, you know, we wanted Laddie's approval and we got it. That was really Paul and myself. DB was somebody I'm trying to, I can't entirely remember. I really liked DB and, and he came on board first and it was a question of who was the girl, who was Kate. And we tested three women, uh, one of whom could really skate well. And you just had to look at Moira and just know that that was, that was Kate. That was Kate Bosley. I mean, and that, that's not an uncommon thing in casting. And you, you, you look at somebody and go, oh, my God, who oh, couldn't have been anybody else, right? Um, and... Uh, so they, we screen tested them, and 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 we, Paul and I, were in total agreement that it was Moira. DB had DB had worked on Eight Men Out and a yeah. few other things, but Moira was still relatively no, like no, an unknown, really, right? I'm not sure she had, what else she had done. She was very young and uh, and I just hadn't done very much. But I think this was like her second major yeah, feature was, film project. Was, was that? A consideration, a concern for you guys? Like, I imagine when you go to MGM and say, hey, we we found this woman. She's incredible. She's the part. It, was there any pushback? I think, I think it all it's all of a piece. I mean, I don't want to mean to repeat myself, but it's all of a piece in this was a below-the-radar movie. You know, it, yep. we were make it for a really good price, and we did. And um, it 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 didn't have the weight of oh you've got this huge budget and you know all these yeah. expectations so we really need the name right yeah. and so that, that was you know, one thing that in a way was freedom and the second was we weren't going to get those people you know we, yeah we, of course we made offers to I think some very uh, really good young women. Um, I think uh, um, what's her? Oh God, I'm blanking on her name. Um, uh, a great star for John Hughes. A young. Oh God, how can I forget this? And she was a really great skater, but she was a a single skater. She couldn't. She couldn't have been. She couldn't have been a Paris. You know, she was just too, too, um, too big. Um, was it Ali Sheedy? Was it Ali no, Sheedy? No, it wasn't Ali. It's the other. Oh my God, uh, Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald. Molly's a really terrific skater and uh, and was great. I love Molly. I mean, I really, I always loved her, but it was not, it wasn't right. So, you know, there weren't, we had to find somebody, you know, and, and, um, but again, it was the, it was the freedom we had because no one was really looking hard at this movie to be what it ultimately turned out to be. And, um, that that freedom, I think, was part of what made this whole thing work. Yeah, I have to imagine that's very, as a producer, very rewarding, having the ability, 
you know, the, the, the creative freedom, the liberty to frankly, like uncover, uh, find like a diamond in the rough, find some, find someone really. Um, DB too. I mean, he really hadn't been a singular leading man, you know? And so, uh, you know, he, he was, it was similar. It was like, you know, uh, I made a movie many years ago called Romancing the Stone. I'm getting out of this jungle dump. I am fed up to here with this treasure hunt business. Yeah. Ira, you miserable worm, you lied to me. You said she was a city girl, out of her element. Just get her in the map and bring him back. Piece of cake. Piece of cake, my butt. What went wrong? I'll tell you what went wrong. First of all, guess who else is here? You're dead right, Solo. What? Secondly, she's got herself a partner. Like shooting holes and everything. Minimum price for taking a stranded woman to a telephone is four hundred dollars. Three hundred and seventy-five in traveler's checks. Not a deal. That's just the beginning of what's going on down here. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner and I remember. I knew Michael really well from because I had marketed uh, um, uh, China Syndrome, and he had optioned this script and. It was uh, no one wanted Eastwood. All those people passed on it. And I wanted Michael because I knew Michael, who was, you know, a second banana in streets of San Francisco at that point. Right. And I knew who Michael was. He was a great producer. And I knew he'd be great. And I said to my boss when we had the project at Fox, I think it should be Michael. He went, oh, my God. (laughs) You know, I don't think so. And we couldn't find the woman. And he came in one day and he said, Kathleen Turner, uh, I said, you know, she's a dramatic actress. I mean, she, you know, and he said, well, Michael won't work and she won't work. Well, what the hell? (laughs) But again, in that case, that movie was made for a price that it, that people allowed it to happen. And so I think, I think that, I think that was, that was a big, uh, a big reason we were able to just make the movie the way we wanted to, to make the movie. There weren't a lot of eyes on it. And I think, you know, so much of, of the film does hinge on, on Moira and DB's relationship with one another. And obviously the chemistry that you saw in the casting process translates immediately to the screen. Something that we have learned throughout the process is how quickly Moira broke her ankle on, on the shoot. And, you know, it sounded like Paul Michael Glazer didn't really uh, envision recasting, but I imagine from a producer standpoint, recasting is probably your best option. I know that happened on Amadeus, I believe. I I, I, I don't think I I don't remember seriously considering recasting. I mean, we, we it was a big problem. Um, I I know we had talked about how long did, can we wait and so on and so forth, but I don't. I, I mean. And I don't think it happened. I, I you, you guys may be right. I mean, you know, thirty years ago. I mean, so I mean, it's a little hard. A lot of, lot of, lot of movies under the bridge there. Um, but we had shot enough that I don't think we could have possibly recast at that point. And Paul was incredibly clever in. Uh, how he dealt with it. I mean, you know, you, you know, the sequences, I mean, uh, when she's drinking and getting drunk, I mean, she, she, she's sitting at a table because she I can't move. Right. And when she's searching for the ring, 
you know, and, and I mean, that's that's played that way because she couldn't walk. And um, so I think that I think the director did a magnificent job of masking that. And um, but it was not good news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can imagine having uh, a little bit of a heart a heart stoppage moment you on know, site. I mean, but the the that's the nature of you know look it's, it's, I've done this my entire life so it, this is a roller coaster and it, it is and if you don't I don't actually like roller coasters but I but I you know you're constantly doing you're constantly having that you're looking at a scene and you're going oh my god it's so great and the next day the actress is broken her ankle so you know and it's like what am I going to do you know and 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 so forth. So you learn to you learn to roll with it. But I think that I think Paul's cleverness and his ability to figure out visually how to deal with it um, was was a really, really uh, great thing. Masterful. I mean, so much so much of filmmaking is really problem solving. And it's remarkable how much of performing and you know whether it's in theater film tv is really smoke and mirrors um just sort of masking things and framing things in a way for the audience to perceive it and see it what i find fascinating about any creative endeavor that sometimes when there are a lot of constraints be it budget time uh limitations of how many reset shots you can actually do do you think cutting edge really benefited from some of these constraints that we're talking about I think it I think it you benefited. I think that the whole mentality behind the movie, what I would call the underdog mentality of the movie, every aspect of that, I think contributed, you know, life imitating art, you know, uh, uh um and the life of the film was was scrappy, you know, and as the story of these people is scrappy, you know, and 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 so I think there is a um um synergy to it you know i mean again you a screenwriter who had never had a produced screenplay so you know kind of like um you know it's like writing a wonderful wonderful script funny edgy um uh, i look back this morning before we did this at some of the reviews which were you know at at best mixed and my my history of reviews is is almost i i would put it up there with any producer as bad review with bad reviews. <laughs> I think I've got, <laughs> you know, who's also had a lot of commercial success. Uh, Cocktail, which is one of the huge movies, really huge movies, has an eight on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't think I've ever seen a movie with a, a lower uh, rank. So we have a history of our movies um, being critically, uh, uh, shall we say, not received well um, and audience wise playing great and i think it's because we're not afraid of sentiment and i'm talking about all of the people involved in the project that we honored the emotional power of 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 this story and we didn't run away from it and we didn't create anti-heroes and we didn't you know we we went with the the emotion and i think the i think that's more than even the comedy um, and more than anything is what is, is the reason the film is stuck around. As I say, you know, it's talking about unconditional love. There's a scene that um, 
in that movie when she apologizes. We can't buy back what happened today. We can't start over. Do you think I look at myself, at what I've become, and do you think I'm proud? What do you want? I don't know. I guess I would like to go back to the beginning and have you say, win or lose, I could just be your daughter. You came every day and you skated. This must have been like a nightmare for you. I didn't know it was gonna end up like this. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for everything. Terry O'Quinn was great. He was, he was great because he was never over the top and he was, you know, and you, you knew he loved his daughter, but he was just, he, he couldn't get rid of the stuff with his wife, you know, and so. He's a single dad. He's trying his best well, to keep he was his projecting. He's projecting from, you know, projecting from, from what he wanted, you know, and, and onto his daughter. But her realization of that, and when she says to him, this must have been a horror for you, right? And that those scenes, and when she then says I'm quitting and and so forth, and I I think that's one of the best endings sequences of any movie I've been a been a part of in my and 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 I I think that's why I think that's that's what people carry with them because they love these people and they 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 wanted to know how much they really cared for each other. No, we we think. It's great. It's uh, that scene in particular we talked about, uh, I think for a full episode, about how much we loved that dynamic between father and daughter, uh, daughter with partner, just like the human, the human relationships with all these characters is really, we agree, that's what makes this film stand the test of time. It's like, these dynamics are still true now. So it's not like something that's fallen into the wayside over time. They're, they're the essence of our lives. I mean, I mean, it's just they're never going to go away because people, you know, people are people, and and the notion, you know, when 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 she says what she says, I mean, you you do you love me because of what I can get you what you want, and DB is doing the exact opposite. He's saying I, I don't care what you give me. I love you for who you are. I've come to love you for who you are. I mean, I, I, that is. That is what people want to hear in life. That's what they want to believe is possible. And, and it is possible. And, 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 you know, I've got a, I just celebrated my 40th wedding anniversary and, and, and I, Congratulations. Uh, uh, thank you. And, you know, in, I made a, a great choice and got lucky <laughs> and she, I think got lucky. Uh, <laughs> I think she would say that. And, and I think that's how we feel about each other. You know, and and so um, I think it's I think this is what's missing in film today. I think um, modern film is going off point. So I'll, I'll no. The, I think this is actually on point. This is I, I agree I, with you. Yep. I I think that what's happened and and um, is it film? You know, film like any narrative form works can work here. It can work in it can work in your head. It can work in your heart. And it can work in your groin. 
you know, it can be emotional, visceral, or intellectual, right? Film historically, never particularly intellectual. Um, there are there are those exceptions. So it's much more a heart and groin medium. Theater is much more a you know a head medium. Um, but what's happened to film is it's gone almost completely visceral. It's almost completely groin. Now it's 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 whatever shock I can give you to your system or whatever I can you know excite you with stunts and and action and and violence and misery and so forth. And I think um, many of the, you know, the, the, many of, most of the films today aim for that. They don't aim for the heart. They're almost afraid of the heart. And I believe that's why film is, is, is struggling. And uh, everybody's an anti-hero. Everybody is so deeply flawed that you, you know, you, you don't give a shit about them. And, um, you know, these were two characters struggling with tremendous disappointment and frustration in their lives and and facing imminent failure of their dreams. And they find each other and um, and 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 realize with each other they can they can be so much more than either one of them could have been by themselves. Like that's, but you don't just just don't see it. I mean, it's 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 not where we go. And so, you know, I look. I love Maverick. I I, I loved Maverick because in many ways it was an emotional movie, even though the the filmic quality of it was extraordinary and and so forth. But I was looking at the Mission Impossible trailer, and I like I'm I there's no actor I've worked with that I have more respect for than Tom Cruise. Uh, what he did on Cocktail for us, incredible. some point it's, oh you know, i love cocktails it's great the stories around cocktail uh are almost unbelievable um they really actually are of all the movies i've made probably the the most interesting stories surround cocktail um you know i think i look at the mission impossible trailer and mission impossible is going to work because of because of of these incredible stunts and the fact that he's doing them and he's mad but doing them, but it's it's not at the heart of what you know and and that's and that to me is that to me is the problem and so I think Cutting Edge was 
um, for, and for people who can still see it, it it hits something that never is going to go away in an audience if you really give them the opportunity. But I think a lot of the uh, decision makers in Hollywood uh, don't see that. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of what works about The Cutting Edge, like Christian was saying, what's, what feels so timeless about it is the writing, is the bones, is 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 the bones of, of the piece that Tony Gilroy laid out for the actors, for Paul, all to play with and work with. Um, but uh, yeah, one, one thing we wanted to ask you about was um, the Pamchenko. This is uh, something we've sort of obsessed with over the course of the podcast. So we were told by by Paul Michael Glazer that you, Robert Court, were the one that decided halfway, partway through production that the film needed some sort of climactic move for Doug and Kate to pull off at the Olympics. And Paul insisted that it was that you um, that you that you insisted on this and that he was uncertain. And so I guess we were we were wondering, like, uh, does the world have you to thank for the Pamchanka, Robert? I, I, I <laughs> well, yeah, probably yes. It also has me to thank for some things that you would not thank for. Uh, so I <laughs> very uh, okay. I'm not being I'm not being falsely immodest. I'm being honest. Um, yeah, you know, sure. Yes, the answer is yes. I mean, I okay. was, I was. You heard it here. We were, we were watching it. We were watching it as and, you know. The interesting thing about film is that it comes alive. You know, when it when it begins. You know, when when actors start acting and directors, and you've had this script and you have a a vision of it, and I would say that Paul realized the vision of the screenplay. I mean, we didn't we didn't go. Tony had laid, as you say, such a wonderful foundation, but you could feel that it was going to need something that really, you know, and wasn't there at the end, you know, wasn't there in the script. Because how do you, you know, the Pamchenko is, shall we say, um, right at the edge. kind of like, <laughs> Possibly uh, illegal is how I uh, think Anton would describe it. It defies the laws of physics. Yes. <laughs> you know, but... It needed, it, you could, I just felt, look, I've been doing this, as I say, almost all my life. And you do, you get a, an instinctual feeling of what is missing or what's not there or, or you know, what you have to do. And, and the great thing is I was able to, to spot that and to raise it and other people executed it. You know, I mean, that's the, you know, that's the group. That's the great thing about making movies, you know, is that it is collaborative. Somebody may have that idea. They may be able to lay it out sort of for you, as I did the idea for this thing. But it's the people who then execute it and with whom you work and you trade ideas and you argue and you laugh and you, you know, and, and you pray that it works. And, and you know, we... We finished the film, and Paul edited and edited and edited. And I believe, you know, I've said this to Paul many times, we waited too long on the movie. I think if the movie had preceded the Olympics as opposed to following the Olympics, we would have. It was supposed to come out in November. The Olympics were 
and I, I think I think the fact the Olympics had happened kind of um, sort of hurt us a bit at the box office. But Paul's meticulous at with editing and and so forth. Did Paul talk about the preview? No, I, I'm actually curious about that in particular because I know there was a little bit more storyline about Anton that hit the cutting room floor, and you know I'm I'm curious when you got that first rough cut and did a preview, what was the reaction and how did it change? We didn't really argue a lot. I mean, Paul was precious. I mean, uh, as most directors are, and and you know, and then the reality of somebody coming in who's your partner, and you know, I'm. Paul was like my brother, right? So, I mean, it's like, you know, said to your brother, no, that doesn't freaking work. I don't want to get rid of that, you know? And so, but but we we had the movie, we showed it to Laddie. And, and I think with this movie, it was hard to know what it was. You know, be, comedies are especially difficult to assess in an editing room without having had a preview. Uh, drama, much easier. Action, certainly much easier. Comedy, because it's such a, um, it's such a group phenomenon, which is part of the reason why, of all genres, comedy has fallen apart in, 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 in the world today. I mean, there's just very little. You don't see them, and it's a shame. It's a shame. That make, you, that make you laugh, but I'll come, come back to that. But anyway, so, and I remember this was, I had had this experience on Three Minute Baby. We, um, um, to digress, but I think it's interesting. I mean, we made three men. Uh, Leonard Nimoy was a dear friend of mine, and we, Leonard was editing up in uh, Tahoe. And uh, I went up there um, to look at the cut and to preview it. And, and Disney at that point said, just you guys go tell us, you know, what. And so we went into a theater in, um, in, in Incline Village. 120 people, you know, tinny sound and so forth. And we we knew the movie was good, but we had no idea how how deeply funny some of those sequences were. And, you know, it was a revelation sitting there. And I think one of the, I always say one of the great thrills of my life is sitting in the middle of the audience with the man next to me, a very kind of heavy, fat man. It's kind of like my father. And when they started diapering the baby, um, for those people who have seen it. All right, well, okay, uh, get me another diaper. I'll use the tape. I'll use the tape from the diaper. I'll tape it up. I'm an architect, for Christ's sakes. I build 50-story skyscrapers. I assemble cities of the future. I can certainly put together a goddamn diaper. Take it easy, kid. All right? Oof. There. There, see? It's working. Piece of cake. There. Yeah. Nice job, Pete. little insect was just waiting for that diaper to fall off. I think we're in trouble. You couldn't hear anything. The sound system was lousy anyway. But it, people were laughing so hard. And he, his stomach was going up and down and up and down. And he was just, he was, and I, I remember that. And people say, you know, moments. That's one of the great moments of my life. I thought, well, all right, I've been partially responsible for that kind of joy. So we didn't know with cutting edge 
where this movie really sat in that regard. I think it was we went to Colorado Springs. I'm not sure. I think that's where we previewed, took a private plane. Um, that's what you did in those days. And you go out of town, you went out of town on previews. You didn't do them in Los Angeles. We went out of town. The movie started. Paul and I were standing at the back of the theater. I couldn't sit. I'm, I am horrible at previews. I mean, I'm like, I mean, my terror is so palpable. It's amazing that anybody can enjoy anything, even with me around. And I was walking back and forth and walking. And I, the movie was working. And Paul finally grabbed me. So will you stop? You're driving me fucking crazy. Oh, excuse me. Fucking crazy. You know, stop. <laughs> I can't, I can't follow the movie. You're calm down. And we watched the movie and the movie, every joke played, every moment played. And then we got the cards. And the cards were among, I've had great audience response to my movies. Not critical, but great audience. This was as good as any movie we've ever previewed first first time. I mean, it was, we were just sitting there on the whole plane ride back, just over, I mean, just so overjoyed that it, it had happened. And one of the things that I think is always interesting is of all the female characters in 57 movies, 58, we don't know, we'll see. No actress, no part ever got a higher rating than Moira playing Kate. She's the highest rated female in any movie I ever did. That's amazing. And we're, we're Kate Mosley fans. Uh, Kate, she, But I mean, you would say this bitch, right? Kind of like, <laughs> but because of that ending, because of that, and obviously the whole performance, right? I mean, the whole guttiness of the character. She was, she was a character in many ways before her time, right in the middle of feminism. Is, and the, you know, I mean, if you date women's real emergence into professional society is somewhere in the 60s, you know, when feminism really began and to where it is today. So this was movies right in the middle of it and uh, of that huge societal change. I mean, there's no... There's no societal change in my lifetime more than the evolving role of women in society, right? I mean, to me, it is. Um, and she captured, I mean, one of the questions we had is, will people will people even like her? You know, will they care? And there's no character, no character we ever had who had a higher rating. Really, is really a remarkable uh a remarkable thing, including, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in, in on the basis of sex, you know, or I mean, any of these characters, um, you know, so, um, uh, you know, again, I think that that is and I really it, look, it's, I take a lot of pride and, and uh, justifiably so, but it is truly and I people bullshit about this. It is the collaboration of Tony and Paul and Moira and DB in that regard that um, that make that made that possible. And but I mean, it, it's so it yes, it surprises me that cutting edge became the cult it, it became and uh, the cult wrong word just but it, it but it in a way, once you saw the reaction to 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 Moira, in those cards, in those first cards, that was should have told us something. We should have we we knew we had 
something there. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, as I say, when I asked about my movies, I'm asked what I do. I say, I'm a producer. They said, have I seen anything you've done? I'm trying to be, you know, I don't like on to play it, but I'll, I'll go through through man, you know, cocktail, um, you know, outrageous fortune, you know, all these, and I'll, I'll mention cutting edge you know, and the number of more women than men, but a lot of men, I mean, a lot of men go, Oh my God, I love that movie. And everybody loves this movie. It's, it's the I best. Tell, we- I got to tell one great Tony story in this regard or, or a story that, so I'm sitting, many of you, many of your viewers probably won't know who he is. So I was sitting, we were at an award, my wife and I were at an awards assembly, um, an awards event. I forgot what it was. And uh, we were sitting at a table with Neil Simon. And I don't, you know, how many of your viewers know who Neil Simon was, but he was the greatest comic writer of the Of course. Century. Brighton Beach Memoirs, Biloxi yeah, Blues. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, yeah. really uh, an extraordinary playwright, um, extraordinary writer, a comedy writer, and maybe the best. I'm not always comfortable out here. I love writing plays. I could do it forever, but I'm on the stage. No, thank you. But I wanted to tell you about a few things in my life. It's unlikely that you wake up on the upper side of Manhattan, 12 years old, and say with conviction... I'm going to be a playwright. Why? I never had, I had never seen a play until a friend took me to an old remodeled, that's why I don't like to do this, um, <laughs> and I could skip some of this. There was an actor, <laughs> there was an actor in the leading role of a play that I saw in New York with, with starring Canada Lee. It was a great actor with a great name, Canada Lee. I sat mesmerized by what he had said in the play that I was watching, and I asked my friend, do the actors make up their own lines? He said, no, stupid, a writer does it. He writes all the lines. He's a playwright, you stupid. <laughs> so I rushed to the nearest stationery store and I bought a, a pad, a pen, and a notebook. What I didn't buy was an idea. I rushed back in and I said, oh, I'm sorry, I need three or four ideas for plays. <laughs> How much are they? Um, he laughed, it was the first laugh I ever got. I finally got a great idea for a play. At that time, I had a wife named Joan, two daughters, Ellen and Nancy, and a dog named Chips. My idea, extremely original, was to write a play about a wife named Joan, two daughters, Ellen and Nancy, and a dog named Chips. I don't know, it just came to me. It took me six years to write it. By then, our dog Chips died. But I kept them in the play because we loved them. Two years later, I found the title for the play. Joan, Ellen, Nancy, and Chips Who Died. <laughs> yeah, he's really one of the best uh, copywriters of all time. Maybe, maybe the best of, maybe the best of my lifetime in terms of consistent... Um, it's like Norman Lear and Neil Simon. Those are your yeah, two. Yeah, I mean, and, and so sitting next to Neil, and um, he said, what do you... I had, I don't know if I'd met him. Oh, yeah, because we had... We had uh, I had re- released... California Suite and Murder by Death when I was mark doing marketing at Columbia. So, um, but I hadn't seen him since I was the marketing guy and now I was the producing guy. He said, what are you doing? I said, 
he said, what, what have you seen? And I said, well, we just finished. We had this movie, Cutting Edge. And Neil just sat back. And he turned to Marsha Mason, to whom he was married at the time. He said, Marsha, they did Cutting Edge. And he said, I wish I had written that movie. And I literally ran out of the hall and called Tony Gilroy York at like 11 o'clock at night, just to say Neil Simon just said he wished he had written Cutting Edge. It's one of the great moments. What an honor. Yeah, I was like, you know, yeah, I mean, those are, those are thrilling things around it. So, uh, I mean, it was so genuine. He said, I wish I had written that. Robert, we don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you have things to do, but we just wanted to, Christian and I both want to say thank you so much. This has been such a treat talking to you and just reliving the movie, rewatching it. Um, it's 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 timeless and it's brought us so much joy. And I know our listeners um, really appreciate hearing your perspective. So thank well, you very, very much. Pleasure, for pleasure, a pleasure to relive it for me, you know, and that's a really uh, that's a, um, a lovely thing to relive the, the the whole history of it. And it's and it's continuing history, so to speak. So thank you. It lives on. All right. Thank you very much, Robert. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye bye. You can listen to Switch. 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 Switch